1: You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello, it's Sarah here, Assistant Editor at Prospect. Just a note of context before we begin this podcast. It was recorded on Sunday the 14th of October. Hello and welcome to the Rule of Law pod with Matrix Chambers and Prospect magazine. I'm Richard Hermer. These are Dark Days. Last week, as we all know, Hamas attacked Israeli towns and kibbutzes along its border with Gaza. They slaughtered hundreds of civilians, including children and babies, as well as young people enjoying a music festival in the desert. They've taken over 100 people hostage, including the elderly and children. In response, Israel has laid siege to Gaza, one of the most overcrowded spaces on the planet with a population of 2 million, nearly half of whom are children. It has cut off food and electricity and forced the internal displacement of hundreds of thousands of people. At the time of this recording, hundreds of children in Gaza have already been killed by Israeli shelling. On both sides of the fence, parents are burying children. Humans are hurting. These past few days have been utterly bewildering and they have shocked us to the core. And thus, this isn't going to be one of our usual podcasts. There are going to be plenty of other broadcasts and articles dealing with the voices of those caught up in the conflict, with the history of the conflict and the wider geopolitical ramifications. But we're aiming for something different in this broadcast. It's going to be a short, objective guide to the applicable laws that govern this conflict. We want to begin to understand events, to start making sense of the almost unbelievable and to do it through the prism of law. In particular, the law designed for the very purpose of judging and governing conflicts, international humanitarian law or otherwise known as the laws of war. And analysing the conflict through this framework may be thought to have a particular value at a time in which emotions are so raw when the parties to the conflict, their victims and those who ally themselves with it are caught up in this maelstrom of hurt and hate. Because law provides us, it may be thought, with handrails, both to judge what has gone on to date and to govern behaviours from here on in. And here to act as our guide, I'm joined by my colleague, Professor Andrew Clapham. Andrew is one of the world's most foremost experts on the laws of war. He's the Professor of Public International Law at the Graduate Institute in Geneva, And he's the author of leading textbooks on international humanitarian law, including his most recent, simply entitled War, published by the OUP in 2021. And what Andrew and I want to do with a subject matter that is so emotive is for this guide to be as objective as possible, to simply identify the legal framework and outline how, on the basis of what's known so far, the protagonist debates have complied with it, and if they haven't, what the legal consequences might be. I'd like to say at the outset that a dry and objective assessment doesn't mean that we don't have deep emotional engagement with what's happening. But it's precisely because of our beliefs and the values that underpin international law, in the universality of human rights, in the need to promote and protect human dignity, that we think it's essential that at these times we publicise what the applicable laws are and how they assist in judging what's occurred, And importantly, how they govern current and future actions. Andrew, can I start by asking you first for an overview of the laws that apply to govern this conflict? We're going to focus in the main on the laws of war, but it'd be really helpful if you could just kind of give an overview as to what are the laws that apply.
0: Thank you. Well, of course, the UN Charter applies, Um, the International Law of Armed Conflict applies human rights law applies, the law that governs international criminal law, and in particular, the jurisdiction of the International Criminal Court applies. So there are multiple regimes, uh, all applicable at the same time. And if I understood correctly, I think we're going to focus on basically war crimes law and international humanitarian law as governed by the four Geneva Conventions.
1: And just so people have got um, the, the, the language right, because it's sometimes bandied around and misunderstood. You refer to international humanitarian law than Geneva Conventions. That's what is also called, in sort of layperson's terms, the laws of war.
0: Yes, we can keep it simple like that.
1: And at the same time, and we're going to focus on that, as you said, at the same time as the laws of war operate, so do, in conjunction with it, international human rights law.
0: Yes, um, it's complicated the extent to which it applies, but I mean, some pretty basic human rights law applies, yes.
1: And I'm going to separate for our discussion, if I may, between the general international human rights treaties, which, uh, 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 as we know, will still apply, even though we are in times uh, of an armed conflict. But I want to focus, if I can, on the particular laws of war and how they impose standards upon everybody who is engaged in this conflict. And there we're talking, are we, about the Geneva Conventions, which created in 1949 four, and then some additional protocols passed in the 1970s. And in addition to that, as you've identified, customary rules of the law of armed conflict, customary rules of international law. What, what do we mean by that?
0: Well, um, to be honest, we don't need to spend too long, I think, on the customary rules. The the main ones that apply um, are accepted by the parties. It's not that complicated. It would apply particularly to the bombing of civilian objects. But that is outlawed as a matter of customary international law, and no one's pretending that there's any doubt about it. The Geneva Conventions apply to this conflict. Both Israel and Palestine are parties to the Geneva Conventions but they would apply anyway as a matter of customary international law, the particular provisions that are important. And the key article, Article 3, to the Geneva Conventions, creates a series of war crimes. And those crimes can be prosecuted uh, around the world and at the International Criminal Court.
1: And those are, people may hear it in in newspaper reports, those are what commonly referred to as common Article 3 of the Geneva Conventions.
0: That's right. The four Geneva Conventions have a common article, Article 3, which governs conflicts which are considered to be not international. Now, of course, this looks like an international armed conflict, but Hamas is not considered to be a representative of a state. And so the conflict between Israel and Hamas is considered by many people to be a non-international armed conflict. Others consider it to be an international armed conflict. Uh, The Israeli Supreme Court has referred to it in that context. But again, I don't think we should get too lost into whether it's international or non-international. The rules are going to be pretty similar.
1: Yeah, and that's because even though there are some rules that are specifically for an international armed conflict, in respect of the common Article 3, these kind of core rules protecting human dignity, even in times of war, it doesn't matter whether we're talking about an international armed conflict or a non-international armed conflict.
0: I think that's right. They, they protect individuals um, against some attacks which create a pretty fundamental attack on human dignity.
1: Can I start with, and I'm going to divide my questions to you, Andrew, if I may, um, to start looking first at um, Hamas's um, attack on Israel. And then I'm going to, once we've looked at that through the prism of um the laws of war um then turn to the um current israeli uh, campaign uh, in gaza so can i can i start then first with with the attacks um in israel and anybody who's read the news will see the litany of horrendous horrendous conduct the um, murder mutilation taking of hostages How does international law help us classify
0: those? Well, we've already referred now to Common Article 3, and it has a list of things that are prohibited against people who are taking no active part in hostilities. And that includes violence to life, cruel treatment, taking of hostages, outrages on personal dignity. So all of the um, attacks and all of the events that you're referring to um, are going to be within that box. And so it would be possible to prosecute uh, those individuals for crimes against, uh, sorry, for war crimes. And in that context, there would also be command responsibility, um, which might come into play for people who had uh, failed to punish any of those acts or failed to prevent them.
1: So, Andrew, apart from the appalling things that we have seen being a, 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 a violation of human rights norms, including human rights international human rights law. They are also, therefore, by virtue of being breaches of Common Article 3, they're war crimes. Is that right?
0: That's right. And the important thing is that that would mean that you would have jurisdiction in the International Criminal Court and in a number of courts around the world that recognise war crimes committed in a non-international armed conflict as crimes of universal jurisdiction.
1: Andrew, I think I'm what I'm about to say is a statement of the obvious, but sometimes these things are worth saying, not least in this context. But in international criminal law, if it's proven that these individuals or those who are responsible for them have committed the acts, then there's no possible defence by reference to context, to political history, to uh, any contextualisation those don't amount to defences in international humanitarian law any more than they do in common sense. Is that, am I right?
0: You are right, yes. And there are specific rules in the Geneva Conventions and in Protocol One, which you referred to, which say that you can't have reprisals against a civilian population. So even if there's some historical thinking about reprisals in time of war, Uh, protected persons cannot be subject to reprisals, and nor can the civilian population.
1: Could I turn next to Israel's response? We're, of course, dealing with Gaza. It's one of the most densely populated areas on the face of the planet. It's two million people, as I said in the introduction, half of whom are children. And the response um, thus far has had at least three major elements to it. Firstly, this, the siege of Gaza, the cutting off of electricity uh, and humanitarian convoys, including food, into Gaza. The uh, um, second has been the uh, order for people to leave their homes. Uh, up to half the population of Gaza being told to do so. And thirdly has been the bombardment of Gaza. Uh, uh, which has led to hundreds of deaths, including hundreds of children dying. And I want to just analyze all of those. but first, can you just 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 tell us I mean again the the legal framework that applies to Israel I- I- in this opera in these operations?
0: So the legal <coughs> the legal framework is is set out in the common article three, but also in the customary international law of armed conflict. and that customary international law, is significant because it applies to the need to take care, to spare the civilian population, to spare individual civilians and to spare civilian objects, and to take all care to do so. Now, when it comes to the question of cutting off food and water, that those are both substances which are essential for the survival of the civilian population. And so we are entering the realm of something that is completely prohibited, which is starvation of the civilian population. And although siege might seem like some sort of legitimate method of warfare, that can only be applied to combatants, to fighters, if it starts to affect the civilian population. And if the civilian population is to be put in a humanitarian situation where they are liable to starvation then it's completely forbidden. So there's a sort of mixture going on of the old ideas about siege warfare, which you can trace back. I mean, even in the First World War, hundreds of thousands of people uh, died of starvation because of a, a siege blockade or a starvation blockade. But in the modern world, um, it's unacceptable to starve a civilian population. And that's, I don't think, controversial. And so even if it seems to be a good means to an end, it's just not permitted. And starvation of the civilian population um, would be a war crime.
1: Can I ask you then, flowing from that, just to move on to the, the, the kind of the next feature that is developing, which is the evacuation orders, and to ask you about that, A, generally, and then B, in terms of the particular context of Gaza, which is a confined space. And obviously, as we've been hearing in the media with people in ventilators and hospitals, et cetera, et cetera. How how do we understand that through the prism of the laws of war?
0: I mean, the laws of war demand that you give a warning to the civilian population um, in order that they have the possibility to uh, escape the conflict zone. However, it doesn't mean that people who refuse are considered now to be fighters or combatants. They remain civilians and their objects remain civilian objects. I think the the UN humanitarian agencies have been saying that the kind of uh, movement of population in safe conditions uh, to a a safety is is not possible in the context of Gaza. And as you know, they have been particularly concerned about hospitals, where it is not possible to move people who are in intensive care or dependent on dialysis machines in the way that's being uh, suggested. So, The hospital remains a hospital, and it cannot be um, in any way targeted, and I think that that must be clear to everyone. But if um, military objects near the hospital are to be targeted, then care has to be taken, and uh, it would have to be shown that it was completely necessary, and the damage to the hospital would, in my view, uh, most likely be considered to be disproportionate uh, to any military advantage that was being sought. So that's going to be a a disproportionate attack in addition to um, denying people the right to health.
1: Can I ask you, picking up from those themes of necessity and proportionality, to turn to the other area, which has been the aerial bombardment of Gaza over the coming days. And we're broadcasting this at a point, I think, probably on the eve or shortly before a grand um, invasion. What are the rules? What's the framework when um, forces go into civilian areas in terms of the care that needs to be exercised? What's the legal framework?
0: I mean, you've raised the question of necessity. So before we get into um, the difference between a military objective and a civilian object, force can only be used um, where it is necessary in self-defence. It's not that once you've been attacked, you're entitled to use as much force as you want. And so the necessity rule actually limits how much force can be used to what you need to do to be able to repel the attack and an imminent wave of a second attack, but not to destroy the enemy forever. Um, That is not how the UN Charter works. Uh, Self-defense can be used in a proportionate and necessary way to repel an attack, but not to have a total war against the enemy. That idea has been rejected. So if there is necessary force being used in self-defence, then it can only be used against military objectives. So that means something which is making an effective contribution at that time to a military advantage. It is not all the bits that are associated with Hamas. It has to be making a military effective contribution resulting in a military advantage. If civilians are incidentally killed, they are known as collateral damage. And within that, there are rules that say you cannot have excessive collateral damage. And so all care has to be taken to avoid any civilian loss. But if it is seen as proportionate to the military advantage of that particular attack, then it will not be a violation of international law. But massive bombardment and failing to distinguish between military objectives and treating all military objectives as one big military objective, that is prohibited as a disproportionate attack.
1: And obviously, my previous questions have been focused on human life, but again and again, mindful of what we've been seeing on our screens, what about the destruction of property and homes?
0: So any attack on a civilian object is a war crime and a violation of international humanitarian law. So one can only justify it if one can show, as I said, that it constitutes a military objective, which means at the time it is making a contribution and creating a military advantage. So the massive destruction of civilian uh, property is not to be seen as inevitable or something that is inherent in war. There are rules now for armed conflict and both disproportionate attacks and attacks on civilian objects will be a violation of humanitarian law.
1: And then finally Andrew, in terms of accountability f- uh, of Israeli government and forces for any war crimes that are shown to have taken place what's the what's the mechanism for that?
0: Well obviously the parties are supposed to bring their forces into line and punish those who create- commit violations of international humanitarian law or war crimes. I suppose for the purposes of our discussion, uh, the interesting or the important point is the extent to which the International Criminal Court would have jurisdiction. So the International Criminal Court has jurisdiction over all Palestinian nationals, because Palestine is a state party, and has jurisdiction over all acts that happen within Palestinian territory. In this context, um, we're talking about the West Bank and Gaza, Um, and in that context, it doesn't matter what nationality you are, you would be liable to be prosecuted at the International Criminal Court for acts that take place in Gaza. Now, there's then the possibility of being prosecuted in a number of countries around the world. All violations of Common Article 3 are going to be considered to be war crimes, Where things get a little more complicated is that to the extent that Gaza um, will now perhaps come under full occupation, crimes committed against protected persons in that context constitute grave breaches of the Geneva Conventions. That means that they could be prosecuted um, in every single country in the world because every single state in the world um, has ratified the Geneva Conventions. The UK has something called the Geneva Conventions Act which means that any individual involved in those grave breaches could be prosecuted in London um, or in Britain under those rules. So there are a series of core rules, if you like, the Common Article 3 rules. There are a number of other war crimes that can be committed in armed conflict. And then there's a special regime called grave breaches, which will apply to any occupation and crimes committed against people who are protected uh, in occupied territory.
1: Andrew, thanks very much um, indeed for that. I mean, as I said at the outset, we are very keen for this to serve as a guide for people in the context of a conflict in which so much emotion swells up, in which parties tend to get siloed, only seeing one side, not the other, and one of the reasons I suspect we're both lawyers and both so committed to international law is that it doesn't discriminate between one side or the other. It's a set of universal rules and there are a set of universal rules based upon a belief in human dignity and the universality of human rights. And so thank you so much for just setting out in such clear terms what the rules are. And thank you very much for listening. Thank you. Prospect brings rigorously fact-checked analysis, ideas and perspectives to the big topics the world is grappling with. Special offer, buy a digital subscription for only £3 for three months access, then £49 annually. Go to subscription.prospectmagazine.co.uk to subscribe.